Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics, and we'll do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're presenting another bonus episode dealing with coronavirus. And normally, we're heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's episode will be heard on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. We have today guests returning from an interview uh, almost four weeks ago about a new modeling system that um, Dr. Bill Goyette, Dr. George Delgado together put together. George has been on Dr. Doctor before on uh, reversing effects of the abortion pill. Uh, Bill Goyette is an aerospace uh, industry engineer with a dozen U.S. patents and in his spare time during the COVID pandemic has developed a new model which may more accurately predict what's going to happen. So welcome back to Dr. Dr. Bill and George. Thank you, doctor. Thanks for making me an honorary doctor. Oh, I am so sorry. You know, I've given our two public health experts honorary Masters of Public Health or MPH degrees. I thought they both had them, Paul Carson and Paul Cieslak. Neither one does, even though they work in public health. So uh, I'm going to think I'm going to have honorary doctorates printed or public health degrees for them. I'll just, you know, at the same time, that I think you get a third degree free when you buy two. So I'll get you a, a doctorate. Which, which flavor would you like? A PhD, an MD, a JD? A <laughs> Uh, PhD would be great. PhD. Right. I'm glad you didn't say MD. Tom and I would have given you hours easily. Um, In my spare time, I blow leaves out of the yard. In your spare time, you're developing modeling to to solve this major pandemic. So uh, thank you for joining us. We call the show Dr. Dr. You now. (laughs) That's right. Hmm, I wonder if we could get, actually, we had somebody ask if we could get CME credits for, for the shows that we do. I wonder if we can. Anyway, so the first question I want to ask you two gentlemen is, what has most impressed you about the course of COVID-19 since the last time we met toward the end of Holy Week? Well, I think what we've seen is, uh, you know, the, the original predictions that, you know, kind of converged in with HME that we're predicting, you know, the current And that's the University of Washington's prediction thing that has been popular. Yes. And the the rollover of the curves and the and certainly the outbreak areas, especially New York and things that we're seeing in uh, California and some of the other states like Georgia have definitely followed those trends indicating that we've done a good job of pushing down um, the curves. And um, there's also been, you know, um, uh, White House CDC plan for recovery that's been published with a phased approach. And uh, we've taken a look at that. That's that's something that we've kind of applied to our analysis. And there seems to be a shift now in terms of the media perception of what's next, what to worry about, and people are talking about a second wave. So that's one of the things that we're looking at. And um, so what we're doing is we're basically kind of shifting our analysis to looking forward not so much trying to predict the short term, but to use it as a tool to figure out how we get through the summer and the fall and into next year. And uh, that's where we're at. So we've got a lot of interesting results from analysis that we've been doing. And we'll get to that. George. I think what's uh, struck me is how much we've learned about the virus uh, since all of this started. It's just incredible because, uh, you know, some people say, oh, this is nothing worse than a bad flu. Others say that, well, uh, this is the worst thing that's happened to us since the uh, Spanish flu back in 1918. And I think we're finally figuring out that it's somewhere in between. It's a very highly contagious pathogen. 
that um, definitely strikes the elderly much more than others. And definitely in areas where there are tight quarters, where there's a group singing together, where they're expelling a lot of virus, or there are people living in tight quarters like worker dormitories in Singapore, it's going to take off like a wildfire there. And if you don't get on top of it, you get a situation like New York City. If you get on top of it early, you get a situation more like California, where it's been very much better control. And, and the other thing now is we're seeing that the, the media is driving so, so much of this with the hype. First, the hype about New York City, now the hype about the second wave. There, there certainly can be a second wave. It all depends, like Bill said, is how we control it, how we manage the situation. If we can manage it well, then it's going to be like a, a tube of toothpaste. You can squeeze it out and stretch it out or like a balloon so that we, we can handle the, the infections. Infections are going to come. That's what I think we're realizing now. People will get infected. It's not going to magically go away unless we have effective treatment or a vaccine. But if we could squish that balloon and flatten it, then it's going to be much more tolerable and bearable. Do you uh, think, uh, as we think about modeling, and we're going to talk about modeling much more as we go, but you know, for our listeners, do you think it, it would be correct to say that our, our worst case scenario modeling that we got early on probably pretty well predicted what was happening in those worst case areas like New York, um, but it, it didn't necessarily predict as well what would happen in more rural, less populated areas. So we were right and wrong sort of at the same time. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, that, that's, that's a reasonable characterization. I think with, with large uh, percentage of the population being infected, you get kind of a megatrend in the, mo- in the model. You're, you're resolving many, many parts per million and, you know, as the thing grows, it, it starts to become a very significant portion of a large population. When you're looking at places like Nebraska, where it's, it's a very small percentage of the population, it gets pretty difficult to exactly predict what's going to happen when, from the outset if you don't have data to match to hospitalization rates or death rates. When you run these small simulations with very small percentage of things happening in them, the outcomes vary quite a bit when you run through a random, you know, simulation. So as you get momentum, things kind of converge in and then become very repeatable. So, yeah. So no Bill, data. have you learned anything since our last talk that's helped you make your models more granular, more accurate, more detailed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as, as we have more data to calibrate uh, to, um, the convergence of the model to reality and the alignment of it, uh, you know, definitely gets better. Uh, we've learned some things about, um, you know, percentages of the population that may be asymptomatic. You can run scenarios like that and look at how it trends and tracks with data that we're taking with antibody testing, which is still early. I, I, you know, we're reacting to early results, but we're studying them right now. And as we learn more, we'll, we'll do additional calibrations. But yeah, with the more data there is out there in terms of as the progression of deaths or hospitalizations are, the easier it is to kind of calibrate your model and say, okay, this thing is repeatable. I modeled the flu and, uh, you know, put in some of the parameters for that and compared it to some of the CDC numbers for typical years. And it, it, it did a pretty good job of modeling the flu. And that has a completely different set of parameters for timing and very good. So it's a generic tool, and it's not really bound by one particular instance, and it tracks pretty well. So in our emails, uh, you had mentioned something about using Sweden as an example. What do you think we can learn from Sweden? 
Well, Sweden's an interesting case because they they didn't do a hard lockdown, but they did take significant measures uh, after they got serious, uh, like on March 13th, to um, discourage, you know, uh, social interactions and limit large crowds. And they, they encourage secondary school and workplaces to do remote learning or remote work. They did keep their primary schools open. And I think the reason for that was so that their healthcare workers would not be stuck at home taking care of kids. So there was a strategic <laughs> reason for that, apparently. Um, and they've been compared to Norway and Denmark, which are Scandinavian countries that had more severe lockdowns. Um, but in looking at the curves for uh, the death rates, when you kind of lay them alongside each other uh, on a log scale and you marker the delay between infection and death, there's not too much difference between those three countries. I think that, you know, um, Denmark, I think, has done a little bit better job overall, and, and Norway got out in front of it like a day or two earlier and a little bit more aggressively. But by and large, they're all generally following the same trend. I think Sweden just got hit earlier with a higher number of infected people in late February from, you know, continental Europe. And that, that largely is the cause of the difference, not so much the fact that they're not being effective. So they match up pretty well with like a phase one or two of the CDC White House plan. So they're basically showing us that we can move into phase one with little risk because they have been effective. George? And I just wanted to also add that I think what Bill's model was able to give us that clue that suggested that Sweden did get hit with more infections early on, which some of the other models won't be able to do that. Because if you have, it's like solving multiple equations. And if you have all the variables except one, and you can give you that one. And that's one of the ways this bill was able to run it to highly suggest that. Now, I just pulled up a couple hours ago, uh, there was something published in Lancet yesterday by like the preeminent uh, infectious disease epidemiologist, probably like the Anthony Fauci of Sweden. Uh, and he says that, and you know, he's defending what Sweden has done. He says it's clear that a hard lockdown does not protect old and frail people living in care homes. Apparently they were um, infected in in Sweden. And he said a lockdown might delay severe cases for a while, but once restrictions are eased, cases will reappear. And then he said this, I'm really curious on your response to this. He says, I expect that when we count the number of deaths from COVID in each country one year from now, the figures or the death rates will be similar regardless of measures taken. What do you think? Is he blowing smoke? Is there something to it? Well, I think the, the first part of of his analysis is, is I think pretty much spot on that, you know, if you have these point sources of vulnerability in a high density, you know, nursing home or rehab facility where all it takes is one person to get in there, infect people. And since the timers are such that you don't know they have symptoms until it's too late, it, it spreads like wildfire, as George said. So what, what I would say is, yeah, I mean, even if you lock down, you still have those opportunities. You got to be very, very diligent. And, and we've seen this in multiple places, you know, in New York, it, they, you know, they're still wrestling with um, nursing home facilities being hit very hard. And I think going forward, as we've, inter as we've studied the recovery plans, one thing that, that we did look at in the phase three was that if you don't continue to provide some protection for those vulnerable um, uh, groups of people that are, you know, in a, in a tight confined area like a nursing home, 
you're going to have a problem. So in our modeling, we've kind of said, hey, you know, it probably makes sense to continue to protect and be extra diligent for those high sources of risk as the rest of the population gets back. So that's a little different than what's in the plan in phase three. But as soon as we started analyzing it, that kind of jumped out that, yeah, those are continual sources of vulnerability. And if you let down your guard, you're going to see spot well, out. What about the statement that a year from now, he thinks the fatality rates will be similar in different countries, regardless of lockdown measures? I think, he, I think he's probably right, barring any developments in vaccine or more effective treatments. Because remember, the, the longer we spread this out, the more time we have to develop effective therapies. Even in the short time now, our intensive care unit treatment has been better. Mortality has gone down. So we're learning how to treat the disease better. But if we have breakthroughs with some drugs, then it's a game changer. So barring that, I agree with him. But I think there's a lot of time where things could happen, could change the game a little bit. Yeah, the vulnerability will exist. And if, if, if the thing bangs around for a number of years, sooner or later, it's going to penetrate into a vulnerable area. It's, it's, a, it's just a numbers game. So I, I would tend to agree with it, but I think George has got the right, you know, if we end up with therapeutics or vaccines or other means of, of doing a better job of controlling this, it, it would be better. You know, something I think that it's difficult to show in the models, Tom and I have talked about this with several guests from across the spectrum, and that's sort of the human behavior component of what you might think of as quarantine fatigue. And that, uh, you know, it had everyone's attention and everyone was very diligent for a while, but it seems as, as every day, day goes by, as a people, we start getting less diligent. Um, and by the time we start seeing huge second waves, for lack of a better phrase, it'll be too late to get people diligent again. Um, but our success, might lead to part of our failure because people are getting comfortable now and they're starting to feel good about it. Um, does the modeling take that into account or is there any way to take that into account? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I have, there, there are input parameters that are reflective of what social distancing and other contact reduction behaviors would uh, uh, take into account. And, um, you know, that can be, um, you know, modulated with other parameters, you know, I, there's certainly features can be added to the model to account for uh, smaller percentages of the population that are certainly maybe uh, behaving differently. Um, you know, we've had a lot of discussion about homeless folks or, or you know, uh, migrant workers perhaps who feel like I have to work to survive um, or whatever the motivation is, but you're going to have a different level of behavior at different um, tiers of society and some of those behaviors for example by young people going you know going to the beach or socializing or whatever there might not really be a lot of risk as long as they're not you know spreading it to, to vulnerable people i think the yeah. numbers are kind of in their favor but yeah there's definitely uh, a lot of human behavior elements and re you know related to public policy and, and how people listen to the government i think after 40 days or so there's a fatigue factor that creeps in and if people don't get it, they don't see people sick in their neighborhoods or people they know, they, right. we're just seeing them go back to normal um, yeah. and they're being told it's a crisis. So I think if public policy is disconnected with perception, the farther apart it is, the less likely people are to listen. Mm. The, the flip side to that though is that aside from the fatigue, there are going to be some subtle changes in behavior that probably will be long lasting. 
people are not going to be so willing to hug people that they're not very close to. <laughs> Less handshaking. People are going to try to keep that distance more like the Germans do as opposed to the Italians. It's natural for the Germans. <laughs> yeah, natural for the Germans. And we have a lot of those in Northeast Indiana. <laughs> so I think yeah, you may have some durable effects. So you mentioned the uh, University of Washington people at IHME. Now, it's fascinating. If we go back six or eight weeks, they were predicting 100 to 200,000 deaths. Then they recalibrated, and it was down to 60,000 deaths. Now, as of a few days ago, they're back up to 120,000. What has gone on? Well, what I, what I, when I was first studying uh, this, and I was looking at the original projections, they seemed uh, to me to be extremely high. So that's part of my initial you know, motivation of taking a look at the problem. And then when they recalibrated, it became evident to me, especially looking at New York, that what they had done was they had essentially imposed a strict lockdown and then let that initial wave of infections bow wave across with a curve, but there was no follow-on. And so I said, well, okay, so they've lowered it, but they haven't accounted for the fact that there's any uh, residual comeback or, or you're opening up in any way. And now they've kind of swung back the other way. <laughs> Uh, where now they said, okay, big second wave is possible. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it's not the middle ground. It's like from one extreme to the other. So you have redone your model looking at the three-phase uh, reopening recommended by the White House Coronavirus Task Force. For our listeners, can you at least uh, summarize what those phases mean and then what your modeling shows? And we'll talk that through with you. Yeah, well, the, the first phase is, is a fairly, um, it's a fairly, well, it's a, it's a small step, but it's designed to get small businesses operating, but still uh, encourage people to telecommute. Um, they haven't quite opened up the schools. They don't want to do that yet until phase two. Um, they uh, want to make sure that we're still being very diligent about protecting the vulnerable. And through all phases, they're encouraging a change in personal health habits. Um, in phase two, um, they open up the schools. That's probably the primary thing. They start to ease up on bars and restaurants, um, a little bit and, um, still encourage people, you know, who, uh, um, have, you know, vulnerabilities to re work remotely and their, their employers to accommodate them. And of course, in all these phases, they want people who are sick to not, you know, stay, you know, not go to work to stay home. Phase three, uh, is more, you know, more of the same, you know, more uh, easing restrictions on bars and restaurants, additionally, allowing, uh, you know, larger groups of people to gather um, and starting to encourage vulnerable people to get out there, which is one area that we think is probably more of a recipe for trouble. Of course, there's the personal liberty side to say, hey, if I'm a vulnerable person and I'm mobile, and I know the risks of the government going to force me to stay home, but a nursing home or where people have no control, that, that might be a different issue. And, and Bill, you know, before you go on longer, I just read an article uh, preparing for this uh, out of Taiwan and, you know, they had huge success in their contract contact tracing, but they learned something fascinating. And that is regardless of whether somebody infected someone else when they were asymptomatic pre-symptomatic or mildly symptomatic or very symptomatic, they all had equal 
amounts of virus that they were expelling. And what's more important is it looks like at least half of the people who were exposed and got it were exposed to people who had no symptoms. And, and after day five of symptoms, nobody in these first hundred patients contacts got it. So it looks like, and which is very different from the original SARS. The original SARS, they typically weren't infectious until day five of symptoms. So contract tracing would do great for that, but it really limits the ability for this. Does your model take into that, that into account? Yeah. Well, Right now in the model, there's, you know, a timer is based on our, you know, understanding of the disease. And, and so when a person gets infected, they are not infectious until, you know, a period of time that might be one, two, three days. There's a, a randomization of that. And but when, when they, they have be, no symptoms, typically. But, the, but, but they have no symptoms. And then there's another timer that says after four and a half days or so from being initially infected, they would start to exhibit symptoms. But again, that's randomized to some extent. So there's a period of time in the model where, you know, there's several days, you know, nominally three and a half days or so uh, where they have no symptoms and they're spreading the disease. Um, the, uh, we can adjust how infectious they, they might be at that point in time with some parameters. Um, the uh, people are assumed in the model right now to be infectious, you know, during the period of time that they have symptoms. So as we learn more, we can certainly uh, make those adjustments. But. So and my, point, my main point for bringing that up is you mentioned the, you know, the civil liberties kind of guy who says, well, if I want to put myself at risk, fine. But he's really putting other people at risk potentially too. And, and that's kind of the, the Catholic solidarity part of it. So that's correct. Yeah. How, how much of our country right now is in phase one? Are there states in phase one right now? I, yeah, I, I think I think a significant portion of the states that have 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 moved, you know, to ease up and get you know get business re, businesses reopened, uh, are 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 moving to a, a phase one uh, right now. Um, California has not yet. They are planning on 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 some phases opening up soon. I think. No, they'll start it, on in two, on Friday, May eighth. Eighth, May eighth. Okay. Yeah. And, they're using a little different terminology. In California, we're in stage one now, which is equivalent to pre-phase one. Stage two will start on Friday, which will be equivalent to phase one, more or less. So tell us, what do the models show about opening up? Well, what we're seeing in, in the modeling is that phase one, since you know, you're, still, you're still doing uh, a lot of the things you were doing uh, during the lockdown, um, it's pretty effective and it's very similar to what Sweden has done. It suppresses the growth of, of, you know, the, the virus, the multiplic multiplication factor, which is the number of people that an infected person would uh, infect over the course of their infectious period is uh, well below one stays there. Um, the reproduction number. Yeah. Reproduction, reproduction number. Um, and once you get into phase two, it, it, uh, it's still uh, fairly well suppressed. And phase three, once things start to open up, that's where you definitely do start to see some uh, modest growth. And, and I think that's a point where you would certainly, through all these phases, you would want to have data monitoring, testing, uh, other corroborating data to try and understand, um, you know, what that reproduction factor was at any point in time. I think Germany is actually using this methodology and allow, you know, uh, when you're easing off the brake, uh, you're doing it in a data-driven way. 
And if you have to do some kind of go back things, you know, it would be things that would be kind of designed to target high risk areas, um, things that you had some causal reason to, to, real, to, to identify as key sources of risk or sources of the infection. But I kind of, what we're seeing in the model is that once you get to phase three, if you really want to keep it from, you know, coming back in any significant way, you need to be doing some data-driven monitoring and decision-making as you, you know, ultimately return to normal. You know, a question that, that's been asked um, in so many words is, if we start seeing a resurgence after some of the reopening, in theory, if you could isolate everyone that is at risk and somehow protect them. So you take every, every vulnerable person in America and put them sort of in a Ziploc room. Um, if every other person became infected, you know, the death rate's gonna be very low from the non-vulnerable people. Uh, would the virus run its course I mean, could we do selective um, distancing, you might say, by just hyper-protecting the at-risk people? Would that be effective or do we know? Well, certainly in the, in the, in the simulation space, when you pull the vulnerable people out of, uh, you know, you, you don't pull them all the way out of the population, but if you basically say, hey, we're going to hold them at a 10% uh, contact rate or 10% risk level of what they would have had before, so one in 10 you know, events that would have happened don't happen or one in 10 do, but the other nine don't. Mm -hmm. um, so they're kind of pulled out of the pool. What you'll see as you, as you run these simulations is when things get back to normal, if you let things go back to normal, say in the fall, eventually the, the infection builds through the general population. There's a much lower death rate because it's affecting mm -hmm. people that are, are much less vulnerable and it does work its way through. And by, you know, early spring, the, you know, the, multiplication factors down below one, you've exposed a very large percentage of your population and you've preserved about 85% of those vulnerable people from, from getting it if you're able to keep that you know, contact rate at 10% of what it would have been. One thing yeah. I'd like to bring up is that I think we're heading towards a strategy like that after phase three where we're going to focus on protecting especially the elderly and the sick or the vulnerable ones. But we also have to look at the cost benefit uh, ratio and the cost, I'm not talking about economic costs, I'm talking about psychological and emotional and spiritual costs to these elderly being mm -hmm. isolated, not being able to visit their families. Is that a, a, a big enough cost to bear that they are willing to bear in order to protect themselves from, from the infection? That's a decision we have to make as a society, but also each individual vulnerable person has to make too, because it may be a risk they're willing to take in order to be able to see their families. You know, some, some of them may feel life is not worth living if I can't be with my family, if I'm, mm. if I'm imprisoned. Actually, early on in the pandemic, uh, I talked to Dr. Greg Burke. He's an internist at Geisinger, and he's also a medical director for two nursing homes. And right before, when two of them decided they were going to lock down, two of the patients decided, I can't handle that. I'd rather risk it with my family outside than being maybe safer for my physical health inside but away from them. Uh, and I bet a lot more people would probably choose that now than chose it then. Now with some experience with that. I mean, I run my own personal little epidemiology <laughs> lab and that both my, my mother-in-law and my mother live with us. St. Chris in uh, the making. That's right. So we've struggled to say, get back in your room, you know, put, put, the, put the grandmothers in the room and seal them off and, and to make them, make them think that the 11 year olds are actually their greatest threat. 
but at the same time, eventually the 11 year olds would be infected and get better and move on and then be protected. But I think your point is, is a great one and that that might work in modeling, but the, the human factor and the depression and the isolation, because so many of the vulnerable are the elderly, that it's really tough to pull that off. One of the states I'm wondering about is Georgia. Uh, Chris and I interviewed an epidemiologist this morning, and he said most of the states that have opened up have good data behind it for doing it. Georgia seemed to be the outlier. So what would you predict is going to happen there where their numbers haven't gone down as much as some other places? Well, we, we took a look at Georgia, and I, I did, you know, the Georgia Department of Health had, uh, you know, maybe early on they didn't, uh, you know, have, a good comprehensive set of data, but I, I was impressed. You know, I've looked at a number of, you know, states and been tracking data, et cetera, but it, it, they, they have a, a pretty good uh, accounting of, of cases and deaths and, and they're, they seem to be tracking it pretty thoroughly. And they, they definitely have, you know, shown, um, you know, that they've gone over the top of the curve. They were hit really hard early on in the Southern part of the state that, you know, there was a, a funeral and the, the pastor, I guess, was sick and he was, probably hugging everybody and consoling everybody. And they had like a whole bunch of people got sick and died as a result of that. And that, that was fairly early on in their curve, but at least our assessment of it in terms of just the raw numbers is that, um, you know, they are definitely over the hump on, in, in terms of where the curve is. Um, I know that in greater um, Atlanta area, you know, they did declare a state of emergency pretty early. So there's kind of two parts to Georgia. One is rural Georgia and uh, the other is the greater Atlanta metro area, which is kind of like LA, you know, it's kind of spread out, a lot of traffic, uh, a lot of people. And um, it seems like they've done a pretty good job overall with the exception of the, you know, the spot outbreak stuff, which I think is largely uh, damped down. So I, I honestly don't think they're in, they're in bad shape. Um, you know, they, the, the, the rural, my daughter lives in Atlanta and she, um, she interacted with some folks that live out in the, you know, in the more rural part. And basically she commented and she was just kind of in quarantine, but they're like, Hey, you know, what's going on with this virus thing? You know, like, <laughs> not, not really, you know, it's, it wasn't, it was kind of like in Nebraska or North Dakota or these places where, you know, farm towns and things like that. It's just not a big thing like it is in the big, big cities, but they don't have a lot of contact the same way. It's not as dense. So I think the risk there is, is low, but yeah, I, our assessment of Georgia is that it's uh, it's actually in pretty good shape, and it, and if you look at the lessons from Sweden, you know they could they can they can start down the path of the phase one with minimal risk. I think part of it is they they've got to be able to get people to say, okay, phase one means this, these things we want you to do, other things we're going to hold on that, and getting people to you know sync with the program. I mean that's that's probably the challenge. You can't go from phase one to phase three or nothing, and have this work. So we can't just assume we're back to normal as soon as anything is relaxed, which might be a danger for some. So, Bill, uh, modeling involves numbers. What are some numbers for the future that are worth sharing? Well, you know, there's a couple different things. So we're seeing, you know, that, you know, in the most severe areas, um, you know, of the world, when you run, when you run the worst case scenarios out, you know, you would expect numbers of several thousand deaths per million population, but, and those are the kind of numbers like Sweden's around 10 million people and IMHE was predicting close to 20,000 deaths for Sweden because they weren't, you know, fully locking down 
And in reality, they're about 2,000 deaths. So, you know, they're running mm. right now, you know, a few hundred per, um, like 271, let's see, 283, you know, deaths per million people. Um, and even Italy and Spain, you know, they're up in the six, 700 range. We haven't really seen a country go like over the top with, with, so there seems to be either a combination of a saturation effect or at some point when people start dying, you know, the behaviors change and the, the thing stops. It doesn't, you know, so there is a reaction element to that. You know, for second waves, I took a look today at, uh, you know, the, 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 the case of, um, you know, Georgia actually, because that was of interest to me mm -hmm. and what the IMHE was predicting. And they were predicting a very, um, a very wide range of, uh, of, you know, future outcomes for, for Georgia from hardly anything, which is what I would predict if we actually do a, an orderly two month of phase one, two month of phase two, you know, just kind of trace low level the deaths um, two deaths that could peak up as high as 200 per day. And I think their first wave was around 30 to 40 per day. Um, and, and I said, well, that's interesting. What if I just basically take in May, step back to 80% of what it was before and make the vulnerable 50%, um, you know, vulnerable 50% contact rate from a, a prior hundred percent and uh, open up the schools and let it run. And that's what I saw. So basically they're, they're, they're modeling a range of behaviors that go from, you know, like a lockdown or an incremental phase all the way up to, a, to, to almost wide open. And so I guess that's if you're going to make a prediction and say, well, the range is from, you know, all to nothing. I guess that would, that would be a way to hedge your bets. But it, it, it really depends on how the individual states and the people alter their behaviors as they go through this recovery phase. And I think right now people are hearing – Oh, it's gonna it goes from zero to you know to 100 miles an hour, and there's no in between. There's no communication right now. The common sense communication saying, "Here's where we are. Here's why we need to do this, and here's how it's going to play out." I I think the, the communication is very very poor, and and it could be improved a lot. I think if people understand, they'll be much more likely to buy in to reasonable things. Well, it comes as no surprise to you, I'm sure, that a lot of our listeners are worried about will they ever get to go to mass again. Tell us, uh, you know, about the risk of things like church and maybe other uh, crowded events could be or may be as safe as some of the things that we, we tend to think of as safe now, like maybe the grocery store and others. Help us understand what that looks like as we try to approach uh, that, that aspect of normal life. Yeah, we've been looking at that, actually, uh, especially here in California, where the bishops are kind of dragging their feet and, and the governor is not allowing religious gatherings. And of course, going to the grocery store is allowed and they have certain um, precautions there where you try to stay six feet away. But if you look at the grocery store, the average grocery store in the United States gets a thousand customers per day. And so if you figure maybe there are 25 customers in the grocery store at any one time, but you go in there, but people have been touching the merchandise, looking at it, putting it back on the shelf. So the merchandise that you actually pick up has been touched probably by hundreds of people in the last three days, and the virus probably lives about three days on smooth surfaces. And then you put it in your grocery cart. The grocery cart, they've probably cleaned the handle, but yeah. they probably didn't uh, clean the carriage part. So you put it in there, so other things have been there, and, and you have then cross-contamination. Finally, you get to the front, and you put your merchandise on the, the uh, turnstile there, on, on the conveyor belt, which may or may not have been wiped. 
Now the clerk has has gloves on his hands, but he doesn't change his gloves between each customer, right? <laughs> so what's that means the benefit? He's touched all the, all the items that have been touched by other people. So you can see there that you have a multiplication effect. Not to mention that in the grocery store, you have they're trying to control traffic in some of them with one-way flows, but the aisles are not designed for six-foot distances. People really go where they want. So we accept that risk, and I think it's actually a pretty acceptable risk. But now compare that to what we could do in our churches, where we could have families sit together, six feet between families, maybe have the spacing so that it's every other pew, so they're six feet between front and back, and you have them sanitize their hands before they go in, maybe self-administer a questionnaire, have you been sick? And if you've been sick, then you go away. And you have them come into the church, kind of the way we used to load airplanes in the past, the front rows first, and then the next people come in. And then once they're, they're set, then they are sitting there. They're not touching everything that everybody else is touching. You have mm. all the missilettes and the booklets out. So you can prop that touching factor is probably decreased by 25%, uh, you can say. And then the fact that they're not moving around, they're staying stationary, always six feet apart. The only time they move is the Catholic church is to go to communion. We have them come out by family and you keep the six feet distancing. The interaction with the priest is only going to be a few seconds, so the six feet don't matter there. The priest is very careful about putting the host. If there's an inadvertent touch, then the priest immediately resanitizes his hands. And they go back to their pews. You have the mass shortened, maybe a 10-minute or five-minute homily. No singing, because singing can aerosolize the virus. So there you've uh, decreased uh, the risks considerably. Now, the person-to-person -person risk that you have in the supermarket, which is very uncontrolled, you eliminate that by, first of all, having the six-foot spacing. People are stationary. Then the exit, you have the people who are closest to the door exit first, row by row, and then you move up until the farthest away. And when they leave, they go in their cars. They don't congregate. So I think you've eliminated the person contact there by 75%. So if we say that, let's say, in the typical church starting out, let's say we would have 100 congregants, compared to 25, that's a factor of four where the church is going to be riskier, right? But then you multiply that by 0.25 for not touching everything, and then multiply it by 0.25 again for everybody staying still and not moving around. So you end up with a factor of actually 0.25 of the risk in the church compared to the grocery store. That mm. is 25% of the risk of going to church compared to the grocery store. So I think going to the church is going to be very, very safe. You can also have uh, apply this to a, a restaurant where they're very careful in how they seat people. They seat people six feet apart. And I think you could see that uh, all of that becomes a very safe endeavor. Even sporting events, you could take it to that. You'd have to have stage seating and sporting events. You probably would definitely have to make sure they wear a mask because people get excited in sporting events. They start yelling, that could aerosolize the virus. But if you have the six foot spacing and the very careful seating, I think uh, you could make that a very safe uh, occurrence too. Well, I don't know about your parish, but at my church, if we convince people not to sing, they'll never sing again. You know? <laughs> Bill been, and I were joking about that. Yeah. I've been, I've been uh, beating my children for 22 years now to force yeah. them to sing 
and the math parts. Um, <laughs> culturally, we're always going to say back. it's safer not to sing. That's going to be the new <laughs> comeback line. But it was interesting in the interview Chris and I did this morning with. Um, Mark Strand, who uh, is an evangelical, he said he was delighted in the Catholic tradition that we can actually have liturgies without singing. So it's so funny, he said, Protestants can learn from Catholics how not to sing, and Catholics can learn from Protestants how to sing. So I thought that was a, a beautiful moment. And the other things we would eliminate to make it safer, by the way, would be no kiss of peace mm, right. and no holding hands. So right. those things, uh, some people might like that. Um, yes, some people would like that. Uh, no, that's very good because this is high on all the bishops' minds right now. Our epicenter in the country has been New York City, northern New Jersey. And, you know, the last reported data was uh, at least 21% of uh, New York City dwellers have had the virus. 14% of the greater state of New York has. So since they've had a much higher attack rate than other parts of the country, what does your model say is likely to happen there through the next two to three months, Bill? Yeah, that, now that's a pretty interesting case to look at because there's a significant portion of the population that's already um, been exposed. And if they can effectively run through a phased uh, program and then relax, you know, to something that's like maybe 80% of, of, of what they would have been before. And I assume that there would be some attention to the subway system because that looks to be the root <laughs> cause of their, their yeah. spreading uh, event, the primary cause. Um, their, their comeback, um, you know, second wave is actually fairly benign relative, relatively speaking, it's similar to, uh, about the same peak as a, a typical flu season in terms of, you know, pneumonia and influenza, um, cases that require hospitalization, perhaps it's, it might be a little bit wider with a little bit more uh, death, but it, it kind of shows that, that in, in the case of New York, there's, it's not like what I would call total herd immunity, but it, the, the, the virus definitely is not going to be able to get traction as it did the first time around because of the significant portion of the population that's been, ex, you know, already exposed or infected. Bill, when you say second wave, what months do you think those are likely to happen? Well, if we ran a, a, a six-month period of a phase one, two, three, two months per phase, and then sometime in November, um, you know, they kind of went back to kind of the post-COVID uh, uh, recovery plan model, which would include some, you know, reasonable things carrying forward. It peaks out um, in about, you know, the February, um, you know, February, January timeframe early in the early in the year. It's kind of coincident with the flu season. There's probably a lot of people actually, if it's still, if it's doing that thing, there are probably a number of folks that would probably fall into the the dual infection category, it's hard to tell. I don't know how that would play out. But um, I think that the key, though, for New York to actually work through these phases successfully is they've got to figure out how to, how to get uh, their mass transit system back online and yet drive the risk of infection down to like 10% or something of what it would have been. Probably means masks on the subway, uh, discourage people from talking while they're riding to minimize the aerosol effect, um, sanitizing you know, the, the cars at the end of each run and uh, handing out free masks or whatever it is to make it really easy for people to do that. And they probably need to do some kind of uh, not personal surveillance, but surveil, you know, they've got cameras there. They can kind of tell how the compliance factor is and modulate their education um, and, and, you know, the things they do to encourage people to follow the rules 
Um, it seems like the subway is a big deal. And that's if they solve that problem, they're probably in pretty decent shape. And I think probably they're going to have to have hand sanitizer stations right before each train. If people sanitize their hands before they get on the train, that could have a big difference because the yes, touching the fomites makes a big difference. Yeah, it's most likely we uh, contract the disease with our hands touching something and then touching our faces than somebody coughing or sneezing on us. Isn't that right? Right. Bill, you have a website, covidplanningtools.com, correct? That's correct. What can listeners find there? Well, we, we built the site primarily to, to be a, you know, an information repository for a combination of things. So we've got descriptions of the model and, and, and the underlying engine and how it's constructed, um, a little more, uh, you know, geeky stuff. Um, for the, uh, the folks interested in math and numbers. Um, we, uh, we have a section where we've done case studies that were kind of done on the initial uh, outbreak. To, these were initial runs that we did to calibrate it against, um, you know, things that were happening in, in New York, uh, LA, Nebraska, San Diego, um, Sweden. And we've now pivoted to building a series of recovery models that, that look at different scenarios where we apply uh, the phases of the uh, recovery plan. And, you know, right now it's based on the CDC White House uh, document, which is largely consistent with varying adaptations of that that are being used by the different states. You know, they might have slight differences, but in general, it's the same. So, Bill, do you think that uh, we're going to have conferences again Anytime in the next three to four months, when, when would you feel comfortable planning to attend a national conference again? Yeah, so that's a tough one. Like we, you know, George and I both are, um, you know, I'm the chairman of the board for uh, Cultural Life Family Services, working with George. He's the medical director, and we have a, a large event every year, five, 600 people. It's scheduled for October, and we're not sure if we're going to be allowed to have that conference and we're mm -hmm. trying to figure out what do we do? Do we have a, a, a live stream event? How do you raise money doing that effectively? Uh, I don't think you're going to see large events where people interact and, you know, uh, you know, congregate in small groups and socialize uh, that, you know, are, are significant in size like that for a while. I, 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 I don't see that happening. I think it's going to be until next year when we get back to that. And that's not because we, do, I, we, could, we might come up with a rationale for it, but I think that's definitely one of those phase three plus type of activities, a large interactive social event. And maybe people can do those without touching each other or creating opportunities to spread the disease, but it would be a, a much different event than what they typically Well, culturally are. too, it would defeat the purpose of the event itself, really. Yes. That's why we go to those meetings to connect with, with colleagues and that connecting often involves 10, 12 people at dinners and small groups and a lot of handshaking. So even if uh, even if a particular venue allowed it, you have to ask, well, should we? Even even if it were uh, allowable, it may not be smart. Uh, that's challenging. One of the things that you mentioned that you wanted to talk briefly about was the relationship between public policy and public perception. Yeah, I, so I think there's we, we've had a lot of uh, background. You know, there's a group of of colleagues and, and people that are um, supporting us on this project. You know, we have several uh, epidemiologists. Um, we have, 
you know, MDs, we have economists uh, and other folks, and there's been a lot of background conversations. And one of the things that was brought up, you know, um, was that like, for example, in California, um, the example of the beaches, right? So the evidence that one would, if you actually look at what actually happens on the beach, you've got sunshine, people tend to spread out, actually, they're not crammed together. Maybe like on Coney Island, people cram together, but in California, it's, it's more spread out. And, and it's kind of clear that on the risk factor scale that George was talking about with churches, the beach would be even like way, way less risk than going to the grocery store. And yet, you know, there was kind of an effort to shut the beaches down and, you know, the standoffs with, you know, people protesting and whatnot. And I think if the government and the policies kind of get grossly disconnected with, from common sense, then people lose faith and confidence and they start not to believe anything. And there's a lot of hyperbole and other things being thrown around here. So I think public policy and clarity and understanding the rationale all need to go hand in hand and there needs to be some clarity. And I think that's largely missing from a lot of the discussion. Um, so I think that's what we would really encourage that, you know, you have a data driven approach, you understand the root causes, you, you have your best estimate of what the right thing to do is and you get buy-in from your population. And in general, I think that's the best recipe to be successful with something like this. If something worse comes along later and people go, well, last time they told us it was going to be the end of the world and nothing happened and they don't react, it could be a, a disaster if there's something that actually turns out to be more virulent, more fatal, affect the kids, whatever it is, right? It, it, it could be much worse. So. Bill, I know that in our state where Chris and I live of Indiana, the, the curve seems to be mostly a flat-topped mesa or plateau right now. And I've noticed some other states look like that too, especially if you pull out their big cities. When or do you anticipate that those numbers are going to go down? How fast will they go down? And what will be kind of a new normal through the summer and early fall in terms of percent of cases compared to max number of cases? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, Indiana is probably a lot like uh, Nebraska insofar as, you know, it's, it's a fairly low level of death rate, but it's, it runs. Oh, uh, we're pretty high compared to the, we're like 10 or 12. 10 or 12. Okay. And your population for Indiana is not, (laughs) it's like middle of the road. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, one of the, you know, one of the things is there, there's, there's, if, if you look at the States or the, the regions where they actually took a lockdown seriously, there's definitely, you can see compared to what it would have been when you run the wide mm-hmm. open, right. you definitely see that the magnitude of that curve crushed, right? And Right, we've flattened it. it. Most places flattened. have. Correct. But if, if, you know, you have some, a region where there's still kind of a lot of, you know, kind of uh, behaviors there, it, you can have a, you know, continued spread. And when I modeled LA, initially I modeled it and it, it, it didn't kind of reflect their plateau. And then when I kind of loosened up on the restrictions and then when people started dying, then I tightened them up, you actually traced out the curve they saw. So there's a, there's, it's, you're trying to, you know, model social behavior now at this point, right? And, and try and guess what a population is doing. But, I, but generally speaking, if you have a low rate, it means there's stuff going on underneath that's continuing to spread it. It's not really growing significantly. Um, in some states, it's probably flat, but it's, if you didn't know about COVID, you would say, well, we kind of have some people randomly dying from 
some flu-like thing. It's not a huge, it's not a huge bump, but it's kind of a low flat thing. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out because it's all really tied to behavior. Right. Um, The other thing I think the listeners should know is that we really need to know which numbers we're looking at. If we're just looking at test results, those are going to continue to rise because we haven't yet saturated sort of the test market. We're testing more and more. It's more important to look at hospitalizations and deaths. Right. Yes. And those are the ones that are really looking flat. And that's, that's very important to keep in mind. Well, as we end up here, what final comments do you want to leave with listeners? George, you go first. Okay. Well, yeah, I think uh, I want to be reassuring that uh, our measures have been effective. They've come at a price. Uh, we've talked about some of that price, but also an economic price. So it's time now to start easing up. But we can't let the sensationalization of the uh, media scare us when we start to see more cases, more deaths. We will see them. We have to expect it. And so it's just going to be a kind of a throttling situation where we're eased up enough to get everything back on track, but to an acceptable amount of, uh, of disease spread. And then when we fully take the brakes off, probably when flu season comes around, like Bill said, we're going to see that double flu season. We're going to see the COVID and the flu. We're going to have to be ready for that. I think our hospitals will be able to handle that. It'll be like a double flu season. And then into the next year, we'll see, again, some trailing off again until we can hit herd immunity or until we develop effective therapeutics and hopefully a vaccine. Yeah, and I, I, would, I would follow on from what George said. If, if, if we are able to develop effective therapeutics, uh, that that's kind of a game changer insofar as, you know, the, if you were able to reduce the number of people that die or would have died by a significant percent, I think that that would certainly change this, the story and the situation a vaccine, obviously, but that might be, that might be a ways out. You know, it, it, sometimes that takes years from, from what we see, but that would be awesome. Um, I, I think that, that, that we need to really move to a data driven model uh, that allows us to make decisions and understanding the multiplication factor uh, of the the disease um, is probably the key thing. Germany seems to be doing that. So if you get enough data and you're looking at things like cell phone mobility, you're looking at maybe monitoring your mass transit system for compliance with your your uh, your policies there, because that's a big, big area for spreading. You're able to corroborate all this data, including the death and hospitalization, to understand exactly where you are. Uh, with the disease at any point in time, you can have sound public policy based on data. And, and I think it needs to be presented to the population so that they can understand it and buy in. And I think that's the, the best recipe for success. Bill, George, thanks for being with us on another episode of Dr. Doctor. Thank you listeners for being with us on Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. And please share the good news of Dr. Doctor, of course, remaining six feet away from those you share it with. <laughs> uh, invite your friends to listen to us on your favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off to your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR 
to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. 